Chapter 6 The Sovereign Citizen Quote The heaviest penalty for declining to rule is to be ruled by someone inferior to yourself. Close quotes. Plato, the Republic, 375 BC. What is sovereignty? Well, sovereignty simply means to have power or authority. The concept of who is sovereign is often most related to power within nation-states. Whole wars and revolutions have been fought on the notion of who is sovereign within a particular region, whether it's a foreign power or an autocratic ruler. The concept of sovereignty was a key driver of the political philosophies and subsequent revolutions of the 17th and 18th century, where power became increasingly seized by the people and for the people, in principle at least. This move had begun centuries before and slowly over the centuries as the ordinary person benefited from the end of serfdom and the decline in power of kings and queens. In Britain, the tortuous 17th century resulted in a constitutional settlement where sovereignty became embodied in the people through Parliament. All very confusing legalese but highly important. The conflict leading up to the British Revolution in the 17th century was essentially a clash over common law, which had only previously very mildly defined the exact powers of Parliament and its relationship to the Crown. The victory of Parliament in the Revolution meant that over the centuries, the monarch would increasingly hold a symbolic role of sovereignty, whilst Parliament would exercise this sovereignty in absolute on behalf of the people. The people elect Parliament, and Parliament could use its power however it liked. Over the centuries, Parliament chose to mix and mash up this power into a series of institutions that defined British life. These institutions that now had varied and mixed power and control over the life of people ranged from formal corridors of decisions, like the Bank of England and the court, to institutions partly of the state, like the great universities and the BBC, and today the NHS. While some were instituted in corridors of power that were highly informal, like gentlemen's clubs or the public schools. The power of Parliament was not fully dissolved down to the people, but Parliament was elected by the people, and it was Parliament itself that exercised the sovereignty of the people. The British Revolution was more profound today than perhaps we realise. In Europe, sovereignty at this point was assumed by lords and kings, who they believed had this power given to them by God. They shared, to some extent, this power with the Catholic Church. But in the furthest reaches of what could be considered European civilization, in the English colonies of North America, an experiment was underway in which there was no clear sovereign other than a king a few months sailing away.
there was no quote-unquote legitimate parliament, no established church, and it was too big of an area with too much independence for any tyrant to rise up to claim this sovereignty. In this harsh wilderness, the colonists had to find a new source of governance. Where these colonists came from, mostly England and the British Isles, had long been a troubled region. It had never quite fragmented like Europe over religion, except perhaps Ireland. But it had fractured politically due to the nature of government and the limits to its rule. To an outsider, this mongrel island nation had a mix of Celtic, Germanic, Norse and Norman roots, and was still at loggerheads over various things in different parts of the island, as many thought, in very different ways, about the nature of governance. To quite understand the nature of British change, we have to go back to the start of centralised England, which means we have to go back to one of the most famous dates in all of history, 1066. Pre-Norman England had been broadly imagined before the Norman Conquest, but the Norman invasion and subsequent rule turned England into a single governance polity, and upset the rulebook by imposing a far more centralised government over the island than had ever been seen before. The laissez-faire approach of previous governance was overturned. Yet, over the years, the supposed ancient freedoms of the regular commoner were never quite wiped out. The tales of Robin Hood against King John and the Sheriff of Nottingham were passed down through oral folklore and demonstrated to those in power that they could overstep their authority and impose hardships on the ordinary English men and women who could then, and were quite legitimately, able to rebel. The Robin Hood tales occurred amongst the peasantry against the backdrop of aristocratic rebellion too. More historically certain than Robin Hood, and perhaps more consequential, the 13th century in England saw a very strange incident occur amongst the aristocracy. The incident was unique to England at the time. Across continental Europe, rebellious barons and lords could easily go to war against the king. Foreign support was easy with the permeability of borders at the time, and so it was quite easy to challenge a king in a certain polity with a bit of foreign help. Aristocrats in Europe might even try to separate their land or invade others to gain political power. But not in England. Perhaps due to its island nature, England saw more aggressive negotiations than anywhere else, rather than outright warfare. King John, long noted as one of the worst ever English monarchs, was so unpopular in England that he inspired his barons to rise up against him again and again. They forced him to sign a treaty called Magna Carta to limit his powers, but he later reneged on it. This treaty set into motion a strange precedent, that of political cooperation, 
but fierce resistance to absolutist tyrants. The Magna Carta myth, as I called it in my other podcast, was the result. Today, what we think the Magna Carta actually said didn't actually say what we think it did. But the theories of the liberties it granted to the ordinary person were propagated again and again a few hundred years later by lawyers like Edward Coke, who read more into the Great Charter than was perhaps there. The Great Charter, which is its English name from Magna Carta, was a deal to limit the barons' duties to the king, to protect church rights, protect the barons from illegal imprisonment, access to swift justice, and freedom for the city of London. The success of the Magna Carta in the immediate period following its signing is much debated, but it's probably true to say it was not all that successful. But what it did represent was more important than what it actually said. The Magna Carta was a victory of an older form of Anglo-Saxon cooperation over Norman centralisation of power. There had long been in Anglo-Saxon England an assembly of the ruling class, secular in nature, which could advise the king and be used as a check upon the power of any one man. The Wittengemot, as it was called, was ancient Germanic in nature, and imported by the Germanic tribes, who largely ran over the south of England in the 4th to 6th centuries AD. The Wittengemot was quite brilliantly turned into the Wizengemot in Harry Potter, with the clear Celtic overtones of wizardry in Harry Potter. Yet as we saw, the Norman invasion turned all this on its head. The decentralised rule of the Wittengemot was met in 1066 by the importation of a new style of Norman centralised ruling, which was far heavier than even Roman rule. The Norman invasion was at times met by intense conflict, especially in the infamous harrying of the North. But over time, cooperation always seemed to win out. Following the harrying of the North to quell the rowdy Northerners, there was little resistance after the quelling, and no real will to fight back. Nobody knows really what happened in the supposed harrying of the North. Some scholars say this harrying was a genocide of the Northerners, yet others say it was actually quite a mild event. I tend to go for the angle, it was probably on the milder end, but still shocking to the people of Yorkshire, as William stamped his authority far more harshly than any previous ruler. He's not called William the Conqueror for nothing. While the historicity of the harrying is still up for debate, what we do know is that William subdued the population of England and replaced most of the Anglo-Saxon nobility with Normans. William seized all the land of England and claimed it for himself and his lords. But over time, the Anglo-Saxon peasantry didn't seem too affected, as the economy continued to boom. Anglo-Saxons 
quickly rose again through the ranks of Norman high society, with the Normans eventually using much the same mechanisms of rule as their Anglo-Saxon predecessors. Over time, the Anglo-Saxons and the lower nobility started to see their wealth rise quite strongly as Norman rule opened up. Slavery was phased out and feudal wealth started to spread. By 1150, only tangential differences between Normans and Anglo-Saxons remained. What the Normans never stopped in England, and had no reason to, was the strong market economy that existed. It was what brought William to the island in the first place. It's most likely this harrying of the North and submission of the English came with assurances to regular people not to tamper with the economy and to allow trade and livelihoods to continue. All they had to do was submit, bend the knee. Most people then, as today, just wanted to get on with their lives. What happened at court stayed at court, and the peasants had no real love for their Anglo-Saxon lords compared to another Norman lord. And so the peasants agreed to carry on trying to find the lovely filth and mud, despite the violence inherent in the system. The Anglo-Saxon lords and barons were replaced with slightly stronger and wealthier Norman ones, and everybody just carried on. It was only 100 years later, of course several lifetimes, but not an astonishingly long period of time, when large-scale interblending of peoples and cohabitation occurred. Much like Danes in the 8th and 9th centuries, who had largely blended already into Anglo-Saxon life. The ability to live together peacefully and prosperously meant that the English prized themselves as more civilised than the Celtic fringes of the British archipelago. Of course, many would say this obsession with living in a civilised manner and judging other people for their less civilised nature is still an inherent part of being English. The peace and prosperity of pre-Norman England relative to elsewhere meant that England became a strong market economy with diverse wealth spread across the country and increasing economic specialisations. A large mining boom of silver in the north of England in the 12th century helped to provide an expansion of the money supply, which helped importing and exporting as international trade for the English started to take off. Rather than simply hoarding wealth, the silver was freely traded, and in 1158 it helped Britain fix itself to the silver standard. You can understand what this new standard might have done for the country, as suddenly reliable coinage with genuine value and purchasing power across international borders was introduced into the country. Britain had always been something of an economic hub. This is why William wanted to conquer it. It was large and diverse enough geographically to be self-sufficient, a small enough population to mean there was a constant excess of resources and a growing and deep skill base now with a strong currency. There was little conflict at home, as people grew richer, and, what wars there were, 
tends to be fought in France. These wars in France over the centuries proved how much wealthier and more skilful the English were to the French. The French managed to hold off the English in the Hundred Years' War, but the success of the English and Welsh longbowmen was down to their relative wealth. Children from the age of eight were trained with the longbow as a skill, as they had less need for children to provide the necessary labour to simply survive. The demonstration of this English specialisation in fighting was quite starkly shown in the Hundred Years' War, as English and Welsh longbowmen ploughed down the French at Agincourt and Crecy. The balanced political equilibrium fostered in Norman England was destroyed slowly by King John. John's barons had always expected to have to pay fealty to him. Paying fealty is a constant in political life, but you should not try and push it, because being stabbed in the back is also a constant of political life. The barons were doing well for themselves in this flourishing economy, and they knew money would be occasionally needed for wars and royal matters. All successful polities allow their rulers a few flights of fancy, but John was exerting such a huge amount of tax on his barons that it was beginning to look futile, especially as he began losing the North French or Norman provinces he'd inherited from his forefathers. The barons were getting taxed until they bled for the privilege of losing wars. John kept making matters worse. He lost all his French possessions, and then spent the next ten years continuing to try and fight them back. After a final loss in France, he came back to England, and the barons had decided it was all too much, and challenged him. All relatively peaceful, but with an underlying threat, the parties met at Runnymede, halfway between the royal stronghold of Windsor and the political and financial capital of London. It was only when King John reneged on the agreement they made, the aforementioned Magna Carta, that everything broke down and genuine conflict occurred. The following Baron's War was short and sharp, and John had already been worn down by now decades of conflict, and he died halfway through his military campaign. John's successor, Henry III, re-signed Magna Carta, which was now less radical in form. Later monarchs reissued Magna Carta, and it became part of political life, with each monarch re-signing it. In effect, what it meant was that Magna Carta was now codified into common law. It was so established that everybody just assumed it was impossible to tamper with it. Barons and elites had clear and legal rights over the monarch. It was the law over the ruler, or, as we have come to call it today, the rule of law. That the barons were well off and rich in the run-up to the signing of Magna Carta is significant. The king could not rule without them. He needed their considerable wealth from their estates to survive and fight wars. The financial independence of the barons meant they were able to kick-start a mini-revolution. The rule of timocrats and aristocrats over the tyrant. 
It was a demand that even the monarch obey the laws of the land. The establishment of permanence in law, of the rule of law, began to alter the nature of English life slowly over centuries, as Norman-style personal rule slowly ebbed away. One hundred years later, after Magna Carta, another uprising in England occurred. This time it was not the aristocrats, but the poorest and most needy in society. This type of revolt was very unusual. The poor are usually the most demoralised in society, and unable, for several reasons, mostly due to tactics of divide and rule by the ruler, to band together and fight the powers that control them. So momentous was this event that it caused King Richard to legally abolish serfdom in 1381. The Peasants' Revolts, or the Great Revolt of 1381, was one of the great events of the Middle Ages. The Black Death had hit a generation before the Great Revolt, and the practice of serfdom was already declining, mostly due to economic reasons, with a third of the population being wiped out, meaning there was a shortage of labour. But following the result, it was legally abolished. Following the Magna Carta signing in 1215, there became an established baron's council to support the king, while knights met too to represent the commons, a term coming from the Norman-French word commune. The knights representing the commons represented much of ordinary people's lives across the island. Over the years, these meetings were highly informal, but slowly began to formalise and to be seen as a real way to unite the country, especially as Edward I looked to unite England, Scotland and Wales under his command. By 1341, there was a split between the nobility and the commoners represented by the knights. Over the previous 100 years, these meetings, somewhat similar to the previous Whittingamot, had grown and the knights began acting with more and more authority, and started to complain about the heavy taxation of the poor and the mismanagement of the military. The English were getting wealthier in their strong market economy, and as people grew wealthier and more confident, political power rooted in a growing democracy started to be devolved down. This power from 1341 grew and grew over the centuries, to such an extent that these institutions became more and more entrenched into normal life, and it became more and more difficult for any power to be taken back. We can see here the start of Parliament and the true divide between the Commons and the Lords, one that continued all the way until the 20th century. However, it was the nature of the role in governing between the Parliament and the monarch, which was an increasingly big one. The roles of Parliament grew over time, with the King taking increasingly less decisions for himself. The role of Parliament grew, with the King taking increasingly less decisions by himself. This was pretty much unchanged for around 300 years. However, in the 1630s and 1640s, for the first time, there became a sharp divide in the country 
as to who, Parliament or the King, actually held sovereignty. When we go back to the American model, and the first colonists coming over, England was going through this crisis of who or what was sovereign, Parliament or the King. The common law system had become so entrenched that people just assumed everything could carry on as normal. But when these norms became challenged, it caused a great rift in the country. The English Revolution, which became something of a British Revolution and Civil War, was the result. As we saw, English sovereignty was technically derived from the king, who technically gets it from God, but roots the sovereignty in Parliament. Parliament is therefore sovereign, but Parliament answers to the people. If you need a dress or have a grievance, you have a parliamentary representative, who should help you address the grievance. The United States, meanwhile, may have started with allegiances to the King and Parliament, but sovereignty in the United States never really rested there. It always rested with the people who were taming the wilderness. Such was the wilderness and the plentiful resources of the New World, that the settlers who were willing to brave the journey across the ocean were given free land. There was no state police or state authority, and so responsibility for governance was largely rested with the individual themselves. The wealthiest would have quickly been able to centralise excess resources and build up their own wealth. For issues larger than any individual, town councils and meetings were set up by the people themselves. This was largely the same model of cooperation as in Britain, where the market economy, rather than grand matters of nation-building, was seen as the more important thing. But unlike in Britain, this was at behest of the citizens themselves, not through an institution like Parliament. Americans ran the governance of their own areas, in their own way. Soon, representatives from various groups would meet together in order to solve more complex issues like trade and mutual defence. Cooperation through flourishing assemblies were soon springing up across North America, taking the de facto place of a parliament, and in the opinion of many on the North American continent, these assemblies were equal to that of parliament under the king. Like any good common law system, the rules and way of life in colonial times were not really questioned to have significance, just assumed to be permanent and not given much challenge. The only interest for all was how to improve on the system, which was working well until 1755 or thereabouts. In around the same time, Britain was starting to industrialise, the authority of these new legislatures, set up by the people, for the people, were challenged by Parliament, who had never treated these assemblies to be on a similar footing. Like in the British Revolution, two sides of the same common law precedent took opposite views. What was essentially a legal matter as to who was sovereign was unable to be established through law and precedent. Many in Britain 
even sided with the Americans, in both private and in public. The revolutionaries, of course, won the war that occurred out of this common law dispute, confirming the rights of the colonists to represent their own sovereignty, and now not only able to separate themselves from Parliament, but also the King. The United States, for this reason, still sees itself as a bastion of individual freedom and anti-tyrannical government. But is the United States still this type of democracy? A democracy based on individual liberty and wealth becomes harder to sustain when the middle classes lose wealth en masse. The loss of relative wealth and individual property in a democratic democracy, with the middle class losing out as wealth becomes concentrated in the top 0.1%, is not a good recipe for a political system. The billionaires of today in America are the old-fashioned dukes and lords of society. Like them, wealth and power are intermingled, and American political institutions are as open to them today in America as much as when dukes and lords in the old British system had a huge influence over Parliament. It's just today we don't call them Duke Bezos of Medina or Earl Buffett of Omaha. Huge corporations being able to dominate markets in the modern economy is not natural. The rapid growth of tech companies giving the United States a sort of aristocracy is something it's never had before, and was allowed to happen because of the centralisation of wealth occurring as manufacturing moved out, and it allowed original investor entrepreneurs to sustain huge shareholdings and power in their companies. The mindset that the internet is the future amongst investors has allowed huge amounts of private capital to try and sustain these companies and allow them to compete with traditional companies which come from older models of capitalism where profits, not revenues, matter. Governments have seemed intransigent in funding new areas of genuine technological progress, despite long-term borrowing costs being low. If you're going to run a Keynesian economic model and prop up jobs through cheap debt and marginal gains in economic output, you should probably try and at least look at using this cheap debt to make riskier gains, especially when the cost is all political and not really economic with all the government money swishing around. Money controls people, and the government now controls the money. People have increasingly noticed how much their money doesn't quite mean as much as it used to. There are becoming fewer safe stores of money anymore, even in stock markets. Oil majors are seemingly in decline. Banks have struggled and seem at risk of imminent collapse at any point, while genuine and profitable shares are massively oversubscribed. Companies that promise profits in the future, like tech companies, are also massively oversubscribed, considering the profits they produce. In a healthy economy, where home ownership is high, people have the funds and confidence to invest in a wide range of profitable stocks, which produce dividends, 
which then filters down to interest rates, encouraging all to save and allowing banks to genuinely reallocate capital. This profit-driven growth model was often the key to real economic prosperity, but it looks long gone. We can trace this to the United States leaving the gold standard in 1971. It meant that the United States dollar officially became the reserve currency, and the United States could control the world's currency and all the effects that would have on the world. It can now shut off the economy of Iran, impoverishing millions, all because of a feud. If the world still traded in a currency that could not be interfered with, then financial sovereignty of countries would be improved, but also the financial sovereignty of people everywhere in the world would also be greatly enhanced. But what does this have to do with a monetary revolution? What does Bitcoin have to do with individual sovereignty? Well, sovereignty comes from power. Power comes from wealth. If everybody is wealthy, everybody is powerful, and everybody can be their own sovereign individual. Bitcoin solves this crucial flaw in the current monetary system by the nature of its mathematics and its decentralised proof of work. It can be relied upon not to be manipulated in any way by a government. A monetary system based on Bitcoin would allow a reorientation of wealth which would be followed by a broader societal restoration in the equilibrium of money transfers. Fixed costs would be reduced relative to labour, which would increase in value, and everybody would be a lot happier and wealthier. The future with Bitcoin is bright. A new technological revolution called the Fourth Industrial Revolution is an attempt to bring together a set of industries to allow profits once again to be seen in the economy. But as we've mentioned before, the real battle is whether it's going to be government implemented or implemented by the people. Bitcoin will return the fourth industrial revolution to the people, not to the state. True innovation pioneered in Britain and then the United States, Germany and Japan was revolutionary because it was not top-down. It was the creation of private and decentralised general wealth, as sound money and high wages proliferated, enabling individuals to follow their passions and get the just rewards. Whether it's Watton Bolton in Britain, or Edison and the Wright brothers in the United States, or Benz in Germany, these types of people don't really exist anymore. They were generally middle and upper middle class people who held private wealth and were independent with independent freedoms. So what I've essentially been talking about in this chapter is what I think should be a fundamental freedom, especially in a common law system. That is the need for sound money in a prosperous, liberal, market economy, capitalist country. This has been lost, but it should be seen as fundamental to our freedoms as the freedom of speech or the right to own property. A fundamental right to liberty we have always assumed to be correct, that of complete trust in the currency 
and the currency being sound and true, to fairly represent value has been broken. This is, of course, not in the news, but it hides behind the news in a sort of overarching explanation for many of the modern ills of the modern economy. Whether you trust the current banking system and government money is your own decision. I'm not here to tell you what to think, only to give you my opinion. But for many Bitcoin enthusiasts, it was this prospect of financial sovereignty and independence away from a broken system, and a return to the fundamental freedoms entrenched in common law and civil law systems that was the key. Bitcoin removes the need for financial middlemen and allows a free transfer of stable currency anywhere in the world for increasingly minimal fees and minimal effort. If the entire banking system crashed tomorrow, Bitcoin would be uneffective. It might go up or down in value, but the system will remain safe and secure. Compare this to the banking system, and even when everything quote-unquote works, the banking system is still manipulated by central banks and governments which have to constantly alter the market to solve political issues. Bitcoin will simply work, and we can rely on Bitcoin to work more than we can our governments or central banks. With Bitcoin, you are safe. The relative value of Bitcoin is highly unlikely to crash anytime soon. And as more and more people keep on investing their spare capital into Bitcoin, it will keep its strong purchasing power. If there is a crisis of confidence in banks, the US dollar, the property market or whatever, then more and more people will look to Bitcoin rather than looking away from it. I think this element of Bitcoin is mostly understood. It's not unstable. It's actually very stable as a currency. It is only the relative value that isn't. The nature of Bitcoin's fluctuations in value is in part due to the different stages people are at with the technology. For some, Bitcoin is already a bank. For some, it's an investment only for speculation and profit. Yet for some still, it is just a novelty. But Bitcoin's value will continue to go up and up, as there's too much of a community who believe in Bitcoin and will eat up price dips for any real collapse to happen. For many who've already turned themselves into a Bitcoin bank, they've seen the change in their lives in using a real and stable store of value. Rather than a bubble, Bitcoin will go through cycles of hard and sustained growth, followed by periods of speculation and some price tips. As seasoned hodlers will tell you, holding and thinking long term about Bitcoin can and will improve your financial situation. The only question to ask is why this would be any different for the economy at large. So how does this notion of Bitcoin intermingle with the notion of an independent sovereign citizen? Well, it's based on the simple observation of what sound money can do for raising the individual over the state. As now, the state will not be able to manipulate currency for its own ends. 
when one bitcoin means the same to you as it does to the government individual liberty across the board will be raised democratic governments in particular will be affected they will be unable to stop the rise of bitcoin as it begins to convert people through superior metrics and growing network effects the libertarian nature of modern cyberspace likes to be used to subvert state power and established ways of doing things if the internet took down the banking system it would be the biggest gain for individual liberty since the removal of the gold standard people should be left to largely run their own lives they are best equipped to do this when what they are paid for their labor is in a fair currency many might worry that the sovereign citizen could undermine the notion of big government safety nets if things go wrong government services which are backed up with large government spending based on unsustainable debt which can simply be inflated away by the government might not be there to support them yet contrast this with the vast vast majority of people who will simply be better off if the purchasing power of their labor was restored the safety of permanent currency like bitcoin should not make people afraid of a reduction in government safety but joy in the newfound permanence of their own safety permanence and financial stability will be increasingly widespread in this new bitcoin world so thanks for listening to the episode if you liked it feel free to give a star rating or leave a comment if you want to explore my other podcast it's called 100 greatest inventions in the next episode we're finally going to start looking at bitcoin itself Thank you.